Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we interviewed Rowan Reed from Bambra Agroforestry Farm. Wood production is considered one of the pillars of agroforestry, where we often talk about intercropping poplars with uh, corn crop, for example. Poplar being sold as a wood product, a timber product in the market. Today, we were able to interview Rowan and, and get some of his... Some of the... Today, interviewing Rowan, we tapped into some of his 30 years of experience in research, academics, and farming. Rowan believes that there are opportunities for all farmers to plant trees and that they can benefit their land in terms of ecosystem services and they can benefit their farm economy with high quality wood. This interview helps us understand why and how farmers should use these trees on their landscape. What is the right scale? Where to plant the trees on the landscape? What to expect in terms of financial return? And how does risk come into play? We address here some of, the key, some of the key strategic considerations, but if you want to find out more, you have to look at Rowan's book, Heartwood, The Art and Science of Growing Trees for Conservation and Profit, and you can find the link in the interview description below. So we hope you enjoy. So hello, Rowan. Welcome on the podcast. Well, hi, Dimitri. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. That's, that's excellent. Thank you. Cool. Rowan, it would be really great to start with a bit of your background. Okay. Um, for those who know accents, uh, they might pick up I'm Australian and uh, our property is in the southern part of Australia, which I think is, um, is about on the seven, seven, uh, 37th uh, latitude. So if those who up in the north, it might be equivalent to sort of California and across to, uh, to Paris or that sort of level. Um, my background, I'm a forest scientist and uh, I studied forest science and went on to work at Melbourne University as a senior lecturer, lecturing in agroforestry for 20 years. But I left there 10 years ago to return to the farm that uh, my family and I set up back in 1987. And that's mainly what I do. I, I work on a, on a farm that produces timber and uh, has animals grazing and we call it the Bamber Agroforestry Farm. And I use it for educational purposes, to running tours, uh, producing our own timber for various projects, and uh, and my own research and learning about trees and how they fit into the farming systems. Okay, nice. Could you tell us a bit more about Bamberger Forestry Farm? What trees do you produce? What scale are you working at? Where is it located in terms of what's the what's the soil and climate context you're in? Well, in the Australian context, it's a very small farm, 42 hectares in size. Back in 1987, when we purchased the property, it was uh, originally part of a dairy farm. So it had it was just the, the paddocks, really. It had no buildings on it other than the hay shed, uh, no internal fences, really. Uh, it was highly degraded along watercourses. 
There was a little bit of remnant vegetation. Uh, the climate in this area is, uh, is very temperate. We have winter rainfall and increasingly hot summers. And for those who watch the bushfires that often occur in Australia, and we have uh, possibly one of the worst regions in the world for bushfires. So our summers can be hot and dry and very windy with low humidity winds. And that, for tree growing, puts a lot of stress on the species that you plant. Uh, we don't do any watering, of course. Uh, that's, that's far too expensive. So we grow about 70 different species for high-quality timber. Uh, they're both Australian native species, uh, North American species, European species, and increasingly subtropical species. Uh, uh, I believe our temperature has increased by about one degree in the 30 years we've been here, and drought stress is increasing. Even if the rainfall stays the same, uh, increasing temperatures put a lot more drought stress on the trees. So on the farm now, we've um, we've integrated those 70 species, primarily planted them for soil conservation, shelter, biodiversity, aesthetics, and fire protection. But we manage all those trees for timber. And where we have grazing, it's like a parkland where we graze between the trees. And the main purpose for grazing on this property, we, sh we use sheep, is to control the uh, fire hazard and also to control the weed growth. Mm. So exotic weeds like blackberry, if you fence an area out, they, uh, they go rampant. So grazing with sheep helps me manage the forestry component. Uh, other people in the area farm, plant trees, and their dominant uh, uh, interest is the agriculture, and their trees support the agriculture. For me, it's really the uh, grazing component supporting the forestry component. And how many, out of curiosity, how many sheep uh, are you grazing on your 42 hectares? Well, originally... For the first 20 years or so, I owned uh, 400 weathers, sheep, uh, just for wool. And uh, But now a neighbour runs 250 breeding ewes on the property. Uh, that's because I travel overseas and around the country before COVID a lot, and I don't have the time to manage the sheep. And uh, it's it's almost a direct neighbour who's utilising the property mm. for, uh, for breeding ewes. Uh, it's a great lambing farm, she tells me, uh, because it's very well sheltered. Uh, the sheep certainly benefit from the, the acorns and the prunings that are provided in autumn and winter. And uh, as because of my interest in agroforestry, I'm obviously very interested in those agricultural benefits that I'm able to deliver. The return from that for me is uh, adjustment income that comes from the sheep. Rowan, I was curious, um, before you took over the farm, was it were they were they also producing um, timber on the farm, or was it just an open pasture? What what was what was the what were the practices before you took over? Um, well, when I took over back in 1987, almost no farmers would be involved in timber production. Uh, so no, mm -hmm. no, there was no timber production on this farm or any of the neighbouring farms really. Uh, there were some remnant trees that had come up after the Second World War. Uh, natural regrowth when there was not enough labour around to control the control the regrowth, just eucalypts, but none of that was managed. Um, part of my interest in setting it up was actually to make forestry, the production of timber, but also the manage management of trees on farms, attractive to farmers because as a forester, I saw a great opportunity for trees to contribute to improving uh, land management 
but also improving animal welfare and uh, agricultural productivity on the family farm. So, no, this uh, forestry is not very common. It's not like Scandinavia or uh, or Eastern Europe, where many families have been involved in forestry for a long period of time. Uh, almost no farmers uh, back in the 80s were involved in timber production. And uh, with my family being involved in farming for over 100 years, uh, sheep farming and dairy farming, um, and my interest in forestry, I just wanted to bring those together and explore that opportunity for, for mutual benefit, really. Okay. And you say that uh, you started to, to see benefits, potential benefits of including the trees on, on farms. And I'm curious as to where that came from. Where did you get this experience that, you know, where did that come from? Well, I think it, back in when I was studying in forest scientists, as a forest scientist, uh, there was a, a growing interest in what we call land care in Australia, the, the involvement of farmers and their neighbours in the active management of the land to control land degradation, uh, soil erosion, what we call dry land salinity problems here, uh, loss of biodiversity. These things were being recognised back in the early 1980s as, as serious environmental issues, as they, as they certainly are in Australia. If you look at the Australian landscape, since uh, colonisation and uh, the removal of the Indigenous people and their land management practices, we've had uh, a dramatic extinction rate of plants and native animals from the rural landscape. And to my conservation-minded friends who tell me about the, the blockades in the forest and why they want to stop logging of native forest, um, I say to them that the real environmental issue in Australia is not having happening at the forest blockade. It's occurring at the family farm front gate. And that's confronting for a lot of people because mm. the conservation movement will not go out and protest against farmers. And uh, But I don't see it as a protest against farmers. I see it a need to work with the farming community to find ways that we can restore the landscape while retaining its productivity. And uh, so there's, there was sort of nothing new in that, except for the fact that most people involved in conservation on farming land would see it as a, a practice that involves fencing out some degraded land, uh, locking it up effectively, and letting nature take its course. Um, I, I say that with, uh, with inverted commas because I get frustrated at that term, uh, and I'm much, I'm, my real concern is getting people to actively manage the vegetation that they plant and to also explore how the act of cutting down a tree can be good for the environmental outcomes. And uh, I'd like to explore that in this podcast because where trees are needed in the agricultural landscape, whether it's for conservation or shelter, and uh, if we have 5 or 10 or 15% of the farm planted to trees, if it's done well and strategically and well-targeted, it's not going to reduce agricultural production. It's actually going to reduce the risks of uh, dramatic stock losses or severe soil erosion in those big storm events or in those heat waves or, or cold patches. So we're not talking about replacing agriculture at all. We're trying to work out what the most effective way to fit trees, first of all, into the farming landscape. And then secondly, and this is the part that I spend most of my time working on, how can you actually actively manage those trees for a commercial outcome? And uh, it could be timber, 
other other people in our in our area produce uh, native foods, uh, native flowers. Uh, some people are in nut production. Uh, my focus on this farms tend to be timber because it's something that fits more neatly with um, less intensive agricultural systems such as grazing. Uh, intensive nut production and bush food production and flower production is tending towards horticultural activities uh, and needs a lot more active management than the multiple use of a forest for timber as one of its products. Okay, that's a fantastic introduction. That gives us a lot to unpack. Um, and actually, you know, that leads on very nicely to to one of the, the key topics in that, that we wanted to talk about. And that's one, one of the things you really specialize in, which is producing high quality timber. So you know, you you you've produced, you've written this uh, fantastic book called Heartwood, where you you dis, you, you discuss uh, in in a lot more detail how you produce higher quality timber for many different species. But it would be really good if you could tell us now on the podcast a bit of a summary of of why are you focusing on this high quality timber and how do you do so as well? What are the kind of the the silver silvicultural management um, practices that you have to put into place throughout the life cycle of the tree to reach that high quality. Okay, so it goes right back to what I was talking about for that multi-purpose design. Uh, take the eroded creek that runs through the centre of our property. Uh, if I'm going to plant trees to control soil degradation, improve biodiversity, provide shelter to adjacent paddocks, uh, in this case I fenced out the creek and I planted a range of species. So the first silvicultural decision I had to make was if I want timber to be one of the suite of products that I produce from this planting along the creek, uh, what species should I plant? Uh, I wanted it to be native species because of its uh, place in the landscape and the biodiversity values. Uh, so I didn't plant any introduced species. But I didn't necessarily just plant what grows naturally in this location. So I used a range of uh, native Australian native species, some from this region, some from the tropics, uh, subtropical regions because of climate change. And I incorporated those into the planting. So the first silvicultural step was plant a range of species so that I could set the forest up so it not only produced the environmental values but had the opportunity or the base from which to work from to start managing that intensively for high quality. Now, the point about high quality is really high value. Now, if you're going to harvest a, um, a conventional plantation for timber, you can use economy of scale, large-scale clear felling to harvest thousands of trees in one day using a large machinery uh, clear fill the whole site, load up the truck, send it away. And where that is done for chipwood in our area, the individual trees might be worth between 5 and $10 per tree. Now, I'm not going to mm. be able to efficiently and economically and viably harvest a tree if it's only worth 5 or $10 if I'm only taking out one or two trees from a particular site, if I'm using a chainsaw and a farm tractor to do the extraction work, and I haven't got a complete load for a log truck. So I have to look very differently. I have to make the individual tree worth hundreds of dollars. And that's been our aim from the start. Have a tree that's, what do I need to do in terms of management of the individual trees to make them worth more than $100? 
so that I can come in and say, yes, today I'm going to take one tree. And that one tree with a chainsaw and a, a logging winch on the tractor and a front end loader, I can extract that log. And now we take that log up to a sawmill, we mill it, put the timber in a kiln and dry it and get hundreds of dollars value for that timber. So what is it that can make that tree more valuable? Now, the first thing is obviously size, the volume of that tree. So what we do is we space our trees to promote diameter growth. Uh, so thinning is very okay. important in the, in the forest. So we thin down where we grow trees out in the past in paddocks. I, I describe it as a parkland, not a plantation. Uh, between our hardwoods like the eucalypts and even the English oak, there'll be more than 10 metres between the trees after they've been managed for a few years and thinned down to their final spacing. Now, thinning gives me diameter growth, and we're being able to achieve trees like eucalypts, poplars, redwoods uh, in approaching 80, 90 centimetres in diameter in 30 years, and that's by giving them space. But thinning alone... <laughs> is not going to give you value if you don't prune. Because if you thin but don't prune the branches off, all the branches will do is get larger and larger and they'll destroy your wood quality. Large branches, large knots in the timber. So we thin and prune. And pruning involves removing the branches off the lower part of the stem, going up as high as 8 metres in some species, mostly about 6, but specialty species maybe only 4 or 5 metres up the tree. And by removing those lower branches, as the tree grows, usually in the first 10 years or so of, of growth, we can then, by thinning, concentrate growth on a stem that is straight. We don't retain through our thinning. We, we cull all the crooked trees. We select the straight trees of the, mm -hmm. of the best species that aren't disease-free, and we put growth on a straight stem over a period of time and do rapid growth by having ra uh, wide spacing in diameter. Now, in the, in the creek system I described, we have a range of species. So our dominant species, which is the fast-growing eucalypts, they've been thinned down to a distance between them of 10 and 15 metres. Between them, I'm actually growing high-value rainforest-type species, shade-tolerant trees that I'm also thinning and pruning, which will take over the space once I've removed the overstory of eucalypt trees. So when you're doing thinning, you can have mixed age classes because you have more space between your dominant trees, but the younger age class or the lower age class must be more shade tolerant because they've got to grow below a canopy. So we can't, we can't grow eucalypts. They're sun-loving species. You can't grow eucalypts under eucalypts, but you can grow a lot of rainforest species that are actually grow quite well in the shade and when I take the eucalypts out, as they approach now 80, 90, almost a metre in diameter, um, I'm selectively removing those. Uh, I, I don't end up with a clear paddock or a clear spot because I've already got younger trees coming up to take their spot. So high quality is about making the whole system viable because timber is not the primary purpose of the planting. If timber was the primary purpose then you do large-scale block plantings and uh, get scale economies of scale. But most farmers can't afford to put 10 hectares under one species in a large monoculture. Uh, they actually don't want to do that because it's highly risky economically to plant trees for only one purpose. 
But if you've got a multi-purpose mm, plantation, yeah. it's really focused on trying to ensure that the extraction of value, in this case timber, does not is viable despite the fact that you don't have the economies of scale and the access issues and other values that you might have in a dedicated uh, timber plot. So we need to do forestry better than large-scale timber producers because they have economies of scale. We have to have quality in terms of our standing timber, and that's mainly achieved through silvicultural management. And we also have to have a value chain. Now, unfortunately, uh, there's not much opportunity for me to sell logs off the farm now because there's no sawmills that would take it in our area. So until we can get many, many farmers involved, uh, the processing will also be relatively small scale. And that suits our, sm our, our small scale, low volume harvesting at this stage. But in 20 or 30 years time, I anticipate that we'll have uh, sawmills in the area that are taking logs from a number of farms and the sawmill will achieve relative economies of scale to have high quality processing equipment. But that doesn't mean that the farm has to revert back to large scale monocultures or clear felling in order to attain viability if they're focused their effort on high quality silviculture. And that is something that farmers can do with manual tools at a very easy uh, uh, very easy to do silvicultural. You can use a chainsaw and your ladders and pruners. Uh, you don't. You can do it in winter when there's not much other work, uh, when it's safe to do so. One of the reasons we prune in winter is because we have many tiger snakes in summer, uh, so we sort of don't like to be looking up into the trees too much in summer. So I do all the pruning in winter. Mm. Uh, it's it's a it's a manual job, but if it's well done and well timed, it's it may only take about. Uh, uh, five minutes per tree and over a period of years it might only be 15 or 20 minutes work to turn a tree that would only have been suitable for firewood into something that's now a high quality timber tree that can be selectively harvested and be viable to harvest. That's not going to be the case with 100% of the trees I pruned. Some may get damaged in the wind, uh, some may have insect attack, uh, so there'll be other reasons but we'll have a high proportion of the trees that we manage will reach over time a very high value standing log. And that's what we're, uh, we're creating. That's very interesting. Some of the listeners may be quite surprised that you can get, I mean, you can turn a profit and maybe you should actually correct me if that's wrong, but you know, can you turn a profit with little scale uh, kind of like more artisanal harvesting techniques, like a chainsaw and a tractor, as you as you mentioned, on high quality timber. Is it is, does the profit come? Is it monetary, or is it also that the profit comes from the other conservation and ecosystem benefits that the tree provides? I mean, can you break even at least with uh, on an economic level, so on a monetary level, by harvesting trees in this way? Yeah, that economics is really interesting, isn't it? I've, I'm fascinated by by trying to understand um, how we evaluate systems. Now, with, with this multipurpose system, one of the most important points is that the timber as a product does not need to pay for the fences, for the trees, for the planting, and it, not, it doesn't even have to pay for the time that the tree takes to grow because we talked earlier about 
10 or 15% of the farm has to be planted to trees for other reasons. So I can I challenge the forest economists and say, you've spent all your work over many, many decades trying to grow trees faster, trying to get economies of scale, trying to, uh, to get low-cost money uh, to invest in forestry. And uh, I say to them that now because our interest rates are now about 2% and people still aren't planting trees for timber. The problem with growing trees for timber is that it's inherently risky <laughs> and it takes a long period of time. So I don't care whether you get, get your money at 2% or 10% in terms of uh, discount rate. Uh, it's still going to be a long investment. And uh, I think a lot of uh, farmers realise that, that it's highly risky. So when we, when we plant our own trees and when I talk with farmers, I have to keep pointing out we're not planting trees for timber. We're planting trees because we want trees for some other reason. All we're doing is spending a small amount of investment, as I said, in selecting species. That doesn't necessarily cost any more. Uh, in managing the tree, the pruning and thinning, and that might ultimately work out in the order of um, uh, 20 or 30 or 40 dollars per tree Australian dollars. Let's talk in hours. It might be a half an hour's work uh, in terms of mm-hmm. thinning around a tree, pruning it up. Now, the timber that's produced only has to pay for that little bit of management. And if you want the time you take having spent that money waiting for the trees to grow but only on a small capital investment in terms of time. So when we do the harvest, you have to remember that we, we're only saying, or we're really asking the question, now that I've done that work, I've spent that money, is it viable to extract that tree and process it without even giving any consideration to all the time and effort and money is spent in the past planting the tree because you wanted the trees anyway. So, when we, when we go to do the harvest, I'm looking at trees that are, 80, say, 80 centimetres in diameter. Up until the first branch, they have two cubic metres of log. From that two cubic metres of log, I can mill out one cubic metre of timber. If that is a softwood, the softwood timber in Australia would be worth, once it's dry and it's very easy to dry our native species, in the order of uh, $1,000 per cubic metre wholesale and if it was a hardwood and the timber dries well and I say that because some of the species are a bit little difficult to dry well it may be worth two thousand dollars per meter cubed as a very conservative price so ultimately I've been looking and the economics is something you obviously do in your head every time you cut a tree down and, and mill it up but I know pretty well now that because we're building a house and I have to either buy timber or produce my own that if I go out and cut down a good straight pine tree, I will, in within a day's work, produce $1,000 worth of timber that I can use that will save me going to buy that timber. If I do a eucalypt, I could save $2,000 in it for a day's work, going to cut that tree down, mill it up, put it in the kiln, and obviously I've got to wait for it to dry, but then unpack the kiln, sort the timber, and do that. So economically it becomes an asset on the farm that gives me the opportunity to generate a reward for time and work on the farm, save me buying timber in, 
and ultimately sell timber out. We do sell a small amount of timber for furniture production. Uh, the price we sell is much higher than $2,000 per cubic metre because people are taking small lots of select timber. And I've got no doubt that that's paying for the process as well. Well, I was, I was really saying with regard to the way we think about economics, you don't plant trees for timber to put food on the table and feed your family. It simply takes too long and it's too, too risky. Uh, you graze stock to generate an annual income. You go to work to generate a cash flow and get, a, get an income. You don't plant trees for timber to get income because as the landholder, you, you have to wait. But as a landholder, you have an opportunity for over the period that you own your property and for many people in generational farms, they might own the property for 30 or 40 years. You have an opportunity to use trees to support your farming system improve the capital value of your farm and provide an opportunity for yourselves or your children or future owners to be able to get direct employment on the farm, harvesting timber or selling timber from your property. So timber as a, as a farm asset is really a capital asset. And we did this experiment with some land valuation of the property. Uh, I, I got my property valued. And the valuer said it was worth 30% more because of the way that I'd grown the trees across the property and because that by having the trees managed, it provided future owners with a diversified income source potentially. Now, it made me realise that I've made more money from trees because of the higher capital value of the farm than I probably ever will through selling timber. But... Selling timber is something I can do without undermining the capital value of the farm because selective harvesting, uh, strategic management means that I'm always continuously creaming off value out of the forest rather than eating into the capital of the property by doing large clear felling operations. In that respect, it's, it's more like a European native forest that's been managed for generations than a a more recent industrial monoculture pine plantation or Sicta spruce plantation. Uh, it's really going back to long-term multi-purpose forestry systems that we used to talk about in Europe and North America and Australia in the 40s and 50s before the industrialization of forestry during the 60s, whether it was really just about dedicated land for timber production and nothing else. And that type of forestry is not attractive to farmers. And I know in Europe and North America, it's not really attractive to local communities, despite the uh, employment it may generate, because they perceive it as competition for land, displacement of people out of the community. Whereas I really want to see forestry used as a tool of the agricultural community to benefit them. And so I'm exploring ways that we can do that. Uh, one aspect is high quality. The other one is integration and multi-purpose. And the other one is producing products that uh, aren't available anymore and are therefore attracting higher prices. Wow, fantastic. Um, Rowan, there's there's too many things to talk about here that you're bringing up. Um, but I mean, for, for me, I'm, of course, I'm more focused on the, the European context and that's the context I'm more familiar with. And as you said, you know, there's a, a perception of, of competition 
between um, with with trees. Uh, farmers see them as competing for light. Um, and you look at the you know kind of continental European context, and it's there is this challenge of light there on the farm, and that's a big part of the agroforestry research. They're looking at how. You know how to how to what are the what are the relationships of facilitation vs competition of the trees with crops and etc. When you look at farmers, for example, in, in some regions of France, which have 100 200 hectares, um, and um, they have hedge systems, how can trees? Or what would you say to farmers that would like to integrate trees on their land, but they're worried about this competition? They're worried about this this light effect. They're worried about the long term investment. I'm sure you're going. It's it's kind of a bit um, repeating itself from what you had mentioned already. Oh, but um, I would like to uh, ask this question explicitly because I think, for from a farmer's perspective, this really needs to be dealt with. There are farmers that are, of course, and I really understandably hesitating to put trees on their farm. And so, um, and and again, looking at this European context, there's hedges around. There's some, you know, it's quite some areas are quite wood. It's got quite a lot of woodland, but not so much. But there's a value for timber here. There's not a lot of high quality timber. We actually bring it in from the United States most of the time yes. from native forests or from all the forests. So what would you say to them? Well, I, can I can I be a little bit controversial? And I'm I'm getting old. I've of course I wrote my first book on agroforestry back in 1985 before I even had a farm. I've lectured in agroforestry uh, for for many years at university. Had many postgrad students. And I set up a community group with farmers down here called the Otway Agroforestry Network, which is the largest uh, group of its kind with uh, more than 150 farmers who are planting trees for, for many benefits on their property. Now, I have that introduction because I don't like the way that agroforestry has been researched and extended in Europe and North America. And it pertains exactly okay. to what you said with regard to trying to work out if there's a perfect combination of trees and crops in a high-value paddock. Now, farmers are right to be very concerned. Let's take the classic uh, agroforestry research trial, and I was in France last year uh, or the year before COVID uh, to, for the Agroforestry Congress, and I saw lots of photographs. I didn't actually go to the site. Uh, where timber trees are planted, integrated with a wheat crop, uh, and you've got cropping and timber produced from the same paddock. Now, first of all, that paddock, if it was in Australia and was suitable for cropping, would be the last place that a farmer would plant trees uh, because what they need to do to be viable in agriculture, we don't have the subsidies that you have in Europe, they have to... Re- they have to be very flexible in their crop production options and they need to be therefore adaptable in what species they plant, how they manage it uh, and and the way they, they crop and the machinery they use. So if you've got land that is stable land that is suitable for cropping, uh, that would be the last place a farmer would plant timber trees, even if the research showed you that at a particular point in time, let's say 10 years, uh, the trees were producing a certain amount of timber. Uh, the crop looked like it was benefiting from having those trees. Everybody knows that that point will come and go and the trees will get bigger and the competition will in- intensify. And cropping, which is a high input uh, uh, land use, uh, if you start losing some of the, the productivity of that crop uh, off the top, for the same cost of planting, caring, 
harvesting, you're actually eating into your profit margins. And you just said that there's farmers with hedgerows. Well, that's a classy example. Let's get out of the cropping paddocks and work with the farmers where they want trees, where they need trees in the landscape. And I think a lot of my concern comes from the fact that agricultural research and agroforestry research has been based on the plot, the paddock, and it hasn't been at the landscape scale. But if you look at the rural landscape, the whole farm, adjoining farms, villages, there are many, many areas on that land, maybe some of it even collectively owned, and I'm talking about examples from Africa where I've worked, where you don't have to plant a tree in any way that it competes with agriculture production because there are so many other sites in the landscape that need trees or are very poor for agriculture. They could be steep land, eroded watercourses, as I said, uh, highly erodible sites that aren't suitable for cropping. And the great thing about grazing compared to cropping is that grazing can be done at a low intensity but still be economical. For example, you might have two hectares of land that's grazed with stock rather than one hectare. And you can spread your trees over the two hectares. Uh, the stock can move. They can harvest all the forage. Uh, you don't have that uh, fixed cost associated per hectare of planting a crop. So I, I travelled around Europe and I saw some very high-value trees uh, in gardens. I saw trees along watercourses, roadsides, uh, plots of trees that farmers had put in unproductive land. And I saw their highly productive cropping land and I thought to myself, why is agroforestry research trying to get trees onto the most valuable agricultural land? In some cases, it might be important in terms of leaching, uh, taking some soil from deep down, uh, extracting water from depth, if rising water tables to make the site suitable for cropping. But most sites that are suitable for cropping, I believe, are the last places the farmer would want to plant trees and nor should they. And I think the agroforestry research has to now move to expecting looking at the whole landscape and saying where the low-hanging fruit, where are the easy places to integrate the trees? And this comes back to a, a concern I have with the way agroforestry is presented more generally. It tends to be presented as a range of options, systems, uh, combinations. I call them recipes. You know, such as you plant trees at, in row spacings of 20 metres and you plant four tre uh, trees every four metres within the rows and you plant this species and you manage it and such. And uh, I know this generates some lovely photographs, but these systems, these off-the-shelf packages, which get so much research and then get analysed by economists and said to be good quality systems that farmers should adopt, are not appropriate for every farmer. And they don't use what I actually like, which is an article that was in the first copy of the Journal of Agroforestry Systems. It was about diagnosis and design. It was about looking at the people, the landscapes, the markets, the economy, and the tax system, and diagnosing what it is that's required and where the opportunities lie, then designing agroforestry systems that neatly match the needs and aspirations and the market's opportunities of those individual landholders in their communities. And if you take that approach, every farm will mm. look different. Every agroforestry system should look different 
because it should be designed to suit the different people and their different farming systems and their different landscapes. The research on can be very, very detailed. It can help the decision-making process, but it should not start generating options that could be adopted or rejected by landholders. And I told you about the 150 farmers we have in this area who, who are members of the agroforestry system, uh, agroforestry network. Every farm looks different. Every farm's planting a slightly different mix of species in a slightly different way. Uh, a lot of them are managing them intensively in the way I described. But the diversity of for agroforestry systems that we see in our area simply reflects the diversity of people who live in the area and the way they farm the land. And that's what excites me about good agroforestry design. And that's what worries me about so much of the research that students want to do, research stations are doing, where they think there is some optimal combination of trees and agriculture that we just need to work out uh, and then we can get a subsidy for it and promote it to farmers. And uh, to my mind, after 40 years of working in agroforestry, um, I, I'm, I'm really concerned that this is what it's come to and we need to go right back to the roots and say agroforestry is about making trees work for each individual farm. And that farm may actually plant trees in a block. They may spread them through their crop. They may only spread them in hedgerows. They may put them along the creek. They may manage them for different products. They may plant mixtures or not, but they will be different. And that's the exciting thing about agroforestry. And the competition that you described with crops is obvious. <laughs> Trees, in particularly in the temperate regions, compete with the crops that we plant in temperate regions, largely because sunlight is a, such an important, significant factor on almost all sites. And root competition and surface rooting just makes cropping really difficult with our machinery. In the tropics, where manual labour is used, where high rainfall events uh, damage crops and extract soil, uh, where there's leaching of nutrients, where there's a shortage of nutrients and therefore the trees can have a big impact by dropping litter uh, and where manual labour is used for the harvesting, yes, there is much greater opportunity to mix uh, trees with cropping systems. But I can't see it happening very much in the industrialised world where we use machinery and uh, and other, you know, and the economies are quite different in terms of the marketing. So I hope people through my introduction can see that we were leading to, to a different view of what agroforestry might be. And uh, I know that there's a lot of great people working in, in systems design, um, landscape uh, systems, and more the ecology side of tree growing in the agricultural landscape, who I think are the ones who are really exploring how we can start looking at at sophisticated inter integration of forestry and trees into the agricultural landscape. I hope that suits your podcast, Dimitri. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, it's definitely, as you said, uh, controversial, but that's, I mean, we started this podcast not because we wanted to, um, um, you know, prove this already pre-made idea of agroforestry. No, we're, we're here because we really want to 
find out the nuance of agroforestry. Uh, there's a lot of chat out there about, you know, how amazing trees are on the landscape, how, how you know, everybody needs to plant trees. And, you know, it's, there's a big hype. It's uh, agroforestry yeah. and a lot of agroecology, actually. It seems to be creating a bubble. Uh, you know, it's like it's, it's growing, it's growing. There's a lot of marketing around it, a lot of communication around it. But behind what we found was lacking was a bit of like hardcore nuance of, you know, is it really beneficial in all contexts? How so? For And as you mentioned now, for each farmer, it'll be different. There'll be different reasons. Um, and, and so what you're saying now is exactly what we're looking for. That's kind of like the, you know, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's, the, it's the little golden, uh, um, um, I have the word in French, pipite. it's like a little golden nugget that we're looking for because it's, it's, it's this. It's like, how can we nuance this conversation and actually be like, okay, wait, it's not always like this. And wait, there's actually some, we can, we can look at trees in a different way. And so this is for me absolutely fascinating. But the next idea that you know, something that was coming to mind now is, is in that case, we need to find a way to be able to convince farmers that they need trees, not because the mm. government, this is what's happening in France, yeah. and especially in Switzerland, where I was working just now. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the government is funding a lot for agroforestry, for basically planting trees on landscapes. And so the, what, the people, what the farmers are doing, they're just planting, they're taking very good agricultural soil, and they're planting on eight by 10 meters, um, they're filling up their soils, their their their, their fields with with trees that are funded. But uh, I mean, funded it's like contracts on ten years where they get a significant amount of money, and so it's it's and and that seems to be a completely um, perverse relationship with the tree, right? Because it's yeah, completely exactly. directed and incentivized by. Um, so so for me, the the next question for you is how in that case with your experience, because you're not just an academic, you're not just a farmer, but you're also a communicator and an educator, and you're 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 working on building communities of people that want to plant trees. And I invite everybody to go check out more of Rowan's work on that and other podcasts on him where they, they delve more into this topic and also, of course, Rowan's book. But how do you then manage to convince farmers that they need trees on their landscape and to find the little, uh, the, the hedges or the riparian zones or, or the, the, the gardens or the zones or whatever may look like to plant them? Yeah, this, this is it, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's whether you... It's it's two mindsets to my mind, to my view. Now, first of all, let's take the European uh, EU subsidies out of the equation, and um, imagine imagine some of you an environment where farmers get no subsidy for their agricultural crops, no subsidy for their uh, milk production, uh, no subsidies for their their beef and their sheep, and uh, no subsidy for their for planting trees or a very small subsidy available for some farmers for tree planting for environmental reasons. Uh, that's the Australian context and probably similar in New Zealand. And maybe it's a little bit where Britain, the UK might be heading after Brexit. But given, as you said, the perverse impact of these subsidy programs, uh, where, where in our environment uh, we start from, from scratch, farmer motivations, if you like. Now, Clearly, if I worked for government or industry, I might have particular motivations about reasons why I want farmers to grow more trees. I might, I might be a conservationist working for, for a, a biodiversity group, or I might be from the Water Authority and I'm concerned about water quality coming off land. These are the many stakeholders in our community who want, for their particular reason, get farmers to plant more trees carbon, biodiversity, water quality, uh, animal welfare, uh, timber production. Each of those stakeholders has a particular outcome they want and they want to encourage lots of farmers to do it. And 
in some cases, they ha have the ability to raise money and then subsidise or do a joint venture or a lease arrangement with landholders where the landholders provide the land or they come to the project because of the incentive being provided. Now, that's fine. I'm, I'm all for people having their particular motivations. But what has really been the challenge in the agricultural landscape in the Western world and even in, in the, the developing world is that it's the farmer and their family who make decisions about how that land is going to be managed. So they are ultimately the ones who decide whether a tree gets planted and why that tree, get, tree is going to be planted. So it it's, comes from one perspective. I've got a particular interest. I want to encourage a farmer to plant trees because I'm a stakeholder. And the other interest is I'm a landholder. Why do I want trees on my property? Now, we've had to, as a community group of farmers, we are naturally focused on benefiting our membership, benefiting ourselves as landholders. We plant trees because we want trees in the landscape. And I've, I've travelled around the world in, in Africa, Indonesia, Vanuatu, Chile, North America, and, and around Europe and the UK. I go onto hundreds of farms and Admittedly, I go onto farms where farmers are interested in tree growing, but I meet many farmers who haven't planted trees, and I talk to them about. I often start by saying, "Just, just forget timber production. Just forget conservation for a moment. Do you see any opportunity where planting a few trees on your property could benefit you?" And it might be a little bit of fodder production. It might be um, beautification of the entrance of the property. It might simply be shelter belts and hedgerows. And I say, okay, let's start with those. Let's start with your problems and your aspirations. And the great thing about tree growing is we have, I like to say, we have a suite of colours in terms of species and we have a whole range of different uh, paintbrushes and spatulas and techniques that we can use to put those colours into the landscape. And we can put them together in any sort of combination using any artistic style that we want. And the great thing about that is that there's very few farms where it wouldn't benefit to have some trees planted in some way. And if we work with the landholders from that perspective, first of all, we'll get the momentum building and you start farmers invariably start small because of the risks and they do a few plantings then you work with them over a period of time now we do this in our community group we have a mentoring service we actually get a bit of government funding uh, that would otherwise be used to provide incentives to pay for trees and fences we as a community group are quite unusual we use that money to train then pay farmers to mentor other landholders, tree growers who are mentoring other tree growers. And by mentoring, we can do it over years. In fact, we do it over, we've been doing it for 15 years now and we do it over a number of landholders who own a particular patch of, patch of land. And by mentoring over time, you can build confidence, knowledge and support networks so farmers become more sophisticated and start planting more trees over time. And that's why when people come to this landscape, drive around our region here, they say, gee, there's a lot of trees planted over the last 20 years. And we point out that that's because 
we did the groundwork. Farmers were gaining motivation and confidence. They're seeing other landholders build their confidence and tree growing just becomes part of the natural farming landscape use in this area. And as I said, starting small is not necessarily a problem. Being diverse is, has, in terms of act, act, activities, has its advantages. And what can be greater than having a, a technology or an idea, which is agroforestry, that uses trees in the agricultural landscape, which is so adaptable, almost every farmer in your landscape can do something. And that's where we start getting adoption. Where I travel to other regions, where agroforestry is presented as just being a, a suite of different options, you have to drive hundred hundreds of kilometres between farms to see examples. I can take you next door and then to the farm after that. They won't look like the plantings I have on my farm, but they will be using the same diagnosis design and the same technology to create a picture on their landscape. And like we say in Australia, your, your bare land is like a canvas and you can write your history on the landscape with trees. It's like being an artist and uh, seeing it that way, your skills will grow with you over time and you'll create something very special for yourself and your family. And by doing so, you will encourage your neighbour to do something differently as well. And that's what really excites us and uh, as a community group and certainly what motivates me to keep in the education, to 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 provide science to underpin and support decision-making, to get farmers to network with each other, with industry groups, with stakeholders, with carbon buyers, with, with anyone in the community and build those relationships, then see if we can start developing what I'd say is real markets, real values for trees that aren't based on, on government subsidies or and, and well wishes of uh, of, uh, of of politicians who are who are just trying to get a few trees in the ground to get re-elected in some in some areas. So there's there's lots in that again, and um, it's if people want to think about what do we need to do to agroforestry to make it attractive to every farmer. We certainly have to start with the farmer and ask them what they <laughs> need and, and see whether we can, as I like to say, the, the key if you're a forester is we've got to change the way we do forestry to make it attractive to farmers. We do not need to change the farmers. You know, if you go to a farmer and say, I don't like your attitude, you know, you're not planting trees, that's pretty offensive. But if you go to the farmer and say, what's concerning you? You know, why, do, why haven't you got any trees on the farm? Are you worried about exposure for your stock and soil erosion? And they say, yeah, of course I'm worried, but I don't know where to start. And I say, okay, we're going to put you in touch with another landholder who's got a similar problem to you and he's, he's come up with some ideas or another farmer, she's got some good, good thoughts on this and they're going to help you make a decision that suits you. That is a much more effective way to do community development work than handing out subsidies for only a short period of time, which we know will be for forests that get neglected. I drove, I drove through southern France and uh, northern Spain a couple of years ago and I saw a lot of poplar plantations. They're all about the same age. They all were planted at the same stocking rate. And I immediately knew that that was obviously a government subsidy program to promote poplar growing. Because mm. if it wasn't subsidised, the farmers would have adapted it to suit them. But because it was subsidised and they had a particular best type of forest in mind, 
farmers had to make a choice. I take the money on and I do what they're telling me to do or I don't do anything at all. So every planting looks the same. And as soon as you drive through a landscape and notice every planting looks the same, you know there's a subsidy program behind it and you certainly know that the people involved have not spoken to the landholders about what they want and what their aspirations are and what their needs are. And that's the key that we're now seeing after 30 years of agroforestry extension and development in most countries. We're seeing the difference between extension that's about community development and integrating and changing forestry to suit landholders and what I could argue is, is the most common approach we have a good forestry idea. Those dam farmers won't do it. We've got to subsidise it. We've got to regulate it and get them to adopt and force them to do it or entice them to do it with the subsidies. And you won't get engagement. You won't get farmers sharing with enthusiasm their knowledge with their neighbour. And you won't get the neighbour planting trees because they say, well, I'm not going to plant trees till someone gives me money to plant them. In this area, we get farmers planting trees because the neighbours were doing it and they said, gee, if the neighbour thinks there's money in this, I'm going to do it because they know the farmers spent their own money doing it. It's a very different model and uh, I would argue that its, its impact is going to have generational impact rather than these short-term uh, little plots in the landscape that we see that reflect changing fashions in, uh, in government policies. The problem, uh, uh, Rowan, is not that you've come up with some controversial, um, you know, not ideas, but some contro controversial concepts. The problem is that you have actually made most of my questions redundant um, <laughs> because it's <laughs> so. Uh, but I'm still going to try and go for some of my questions. Let's see where we what replies you manage to 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 give to them, because I do think that there are some of the concerns that are that are. Um, that people have in the agroforestry world or that farmers have in, in, with regards to agroforestry. So let's still try to go through them, but taking into account that they may be a bit redundant because of um, you know, this other approach, this, this completely different approach to looking at agroforestry. Well, completely, I, I, I would be careful to say completely different, um, to not be offensive to other approaches, etc. but at least there is something, we have to admit that there's something quite unique with this, this, the approach to putting trees on the landscape that you've described right now. So one of the ones that you just talked now talked about now is the is the factor of risk, hmm. and and um, on the other podcast that I um, listened, um, um, you were talking a lot about the fact that planting trees is quite risky, and that that's why we should be careful by of considering trees just for profit in, in terms of monetary profit, because of uh, the fact that they can be quite risky to climate conditions. Uh, so for example, a storm or this or that, the cli climate change as well creating problems. So I mean, and also you can understand farmers becoming a bit risk averse um, mm -hmm. because of one, the subsidy system, which kind of has a big impact, but two, the fact that, you know, farmers are not having a very easy time at the moment and um, they are struggling to innovate because of the financial condition, which is not creating a mindset, which, which it wants to go for innovation and, and, and new things. So what would you say to, to, to that? How, how, do you, how do you convince a farmer uh, who's very much concerned about investing in something that he's not familiar with and that's risky how, how would you deal with 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 that scenario yeah the, I'm, I'm glad you've raised risk because because it's obvious I, I i guess and uh and and 
there's two ways of looking at it. Uh, you, your farmers can say, I'm not going to plant trees because it's financially risky or lacks flexibility, or I could have a cyclone. We've, we've just had a cyclone this week in Western Australia, part of Australia. Uh, we could have floods. We just had floods in, in New South Wales around Sydney uh, this year, or we could have a bushfire. Now, these are things that happen all the time in the Australian context and right around the world, those environmental risks, economic risks, and there's also a sovereign risk, and that's when you might grow trees for 30 or 40 years and then someone, for some reason, might change the regulations, change the planning rules, and say you can't cut those trees down for timber because they are now valued by the wider community for their carbon or for their biodiversity or just because they look good. And funnily enough, we've had a couple of uh, examples of that just on our property. So... What I the the way I want to emphasise risk is let's talk about it. And uh, we have this. I set up a program called the Australian Master Tree Grower Program, and we're running another one this week. The first one after COVID, we have a group of twenty five farmers in a particular location, and we spend a day a week with them, uh, talking about trees and visiting their property and exploring the science and the markets and stuff like that. And one thing we do in that course is we encourage people to talk about the risks and the uncertainties that they see. And we say these are given. The risk is, is, is we know the risk more than we know the benefits in the, in the sense of growing trees. So let's see how we can design our systems to minimise the risk. And the obvious way is, as I've described, uh, plant trees for many different purposes. Uh, plant trees because you want trees mm. for aesthetics or environmental reasons or, or something like that. Always plant so that the timber or the economic return is really a bonus on top of the fact that you wanted trees anyway. Now, as we go right back and repeat again that I don't believe there's any farm that couldn't have 5% tree cover. And if we had 5 or 10% tree cover across our rural landscape, there would be thousands of thousands of hectares of trees providing biodiversity, carbon, water quality, timber production, a whole suite of different benefits. So I think we can achieve scale without exposing individual family farms to risk uh, by marrying that small-scale risk-averse initial activities where farmers build up their confidence over time so we've had farmers who start with a, a few hundred trees. Ten years later, their confidence is built, their designing and their management skills have improved, so they're confident that they can manage the risks and they plant thousands of trees every year as a result of that. So risk is not only something that's real, it's something that can be managed and something that you can reduce in terms of your degree of exposure to it. And the great thing about forestry is it can be used to address some of the risks. And the obvious ones are risk of exposure to heat and cold stress for your farm animals. Uh, the risk of massive soil erosion on steep slopes or along watercourses. And these are the, the risks that farmers face every year and say, as soon as I grow trees, start growing trees, that risk will go. A very, very good friend of mine, uh, Andrew Stewart and his wife Jill, are on a family farm just over the hill from me. He's an agricultural scientist, a fifth-generation farmer. He only plants trees to reduce the risk. In fact, 
I took a video out one day and I filmed him in the paddocks. He just spoke to the camera and he said something that I described in the book that I've never heard any farmer say before. He said, planting trees is part of my risk management strategy. In fact, he said that waiting 30 or 40 years for the trees to grow wasn't a problem for him because the trees that he was planting were already doing jobs for the farm, were already reducing the risk, and they provided an opportunity for him to pass on the farm to the next generation that not only had reduced risks of exposure, soil erosion, but also had the opportunity to come from producing income from the timber on top of that. And he described it so beautifully that it taught me that when we talk about growing trees on farms, we have to talk about the risks and we have to accept it as a given and we have to incorporate risk into the design process. If someone says it's no point planting any trees, then I, you know, not even one on their property, I suspect they haven't come to terms with the risks that they face by not having any trees on the property. So that every tree you plant should be reducing risk rather than increasing it. And conventional forestry, the idea of putting in a block of trees just for timber, you know, that block of poplars in France or the block of block of pines or, or something like that, if it's only done for timber, you are increasing risk burden on the farming family, not reducing it. And that's when people get nervous. So what we do is talk yeah, risk, that's very change the way we design the systems to reduce the risk, start small and try to reduce their perception of risk by building confidence over time, by being part of a community, by having a mentor, by by introducing them to the markets, uh, by showing them the skills and how easy it is to do some of the tree management we described. Every step of the way is really about building confidence and managing risks. So I just think it's absolutely crucial. Crucial. I, do, I think it's overlooked by academics who aren't the ones generally who are putting their own land and money on the line when it comes to tree growing. And economists try to put a cost on risk, but it's very difficult because you might find that your whole farm gets burnt one year or, or you, you, ha you have a disease or something. Or, you know, as I said, when I planted trees, there were four sawmills in the area that I thought would take the logs. They've all gone because the government stopped doing native forest logging in our region. So the sawmills uh, left the area. So risk mm. is, just, is just there, you know, and certainly you don't want to ignore it, but you, you can benefit it from it by using the trees to reduce the risks that farmers are already experiencing and making sure you're not introducing any new ones or not new ones that they're, they're, uh, they're not willing to take on. Because it does involve new skills. It does involve new products. For me, this is what it brings up. Um, it's the fact that all of the risk is also very much correlated with uh, knowledge and experience, knowledge of how to plant the trees, where to plant the trees, experience of how to manage them. And this is something that farmers also have to learn this whole new set of, of skills in order to learn forestry um, and agroforestry in order for it to be a successful and less risky operation on their farm, right? Yeah, exactly. So these, this involves new skills. Uh, many farmers have never even planted a tree, uh, let alone pruned one or, or ever been to a sawmill. So, uh, so again, 
that's exactly what we do. Our mentors uh, often, you know, the, the idea of mentoring, we, uh, as I said, we, we use our government funding that would be used to subsidise trees. We've argued to our, to our agencies, please give us the money. We're going to use it to get farm, train farmers to talk to each other because everyone who's worked in rural communities knows that there are different sources of knowledge and one of the most important sources of knowledge is farmers that you respect within your community because you know they're dealing with similar crops, similar animals, similar climate issues and, and similar soils and you look at them, you watch what they're doing, you often talk to them, then you adapt their their systems to suit you. Then you get other sources of information in agriculture. Agriculture advisors, um, uh, the, 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 the wool brokers, the people who buy your products, you talk to them about what their market specifications are. So you gather information from different sources. We're trying to do the same thing with the farmers by having a network of landholders who can support each other so that our landholders have got mentors and they attend field days and, and other group activities and they feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at the, for example, I'm at the tree planting stage, they say. Um, I'm not ready to learn about how to market the timber or how to prune the timber or fell the trees. I just want to learn how to plant. So what we do with that person, a mentor or two, one or two mentors would go and spend two hours planting trees with that landholder on their property and then they'd say, okay, you know, we've, we've been chatting about trees, how to plant them. Are you confident now? We'll leave and you can carry on or you can pay a contractor. Now you know how the contractor should be doing it and stuff like that. So we build confidence through traditional ways that landholders gain information and confidence through a information network of trusted mentors, the people who they see are similar to us peers we call them, peer mentors, people who are similar in some respects. And then we link those people in with specialist advisors, whether they be in government or research or the market or the industry or something else when they've got particular questions. But importantly, we often interplay between the landholder and the researcher or the industry to improve the quality of that communication so that it's more uh, it's presented in a way that it's more appropriate and suitable to that landholder's needs and aspirations. So, yes, it is. It's a difficult skill to learn because it's different things over many years, and it's different things for different species. And you might have to change what you're doing if a if a disease comes in, or suddenly you've had a windstorm, and how am I going to suddenly um, rehabilitate my trees. What pruning do I do now that I've I've lost some tops out of some of them and stuff like that? Well, we can do that by providing mentorship from the peers and other people with experience in that area to support them, and we can build up confidence over a period of time in our community. So yes, we acknowledge that that is one of the big problems. We treat it not by handing out pamphlets and and books saying this is how you do it but by having trusted peers that they can talk to and show their problem to and get locally appropriate advice about what they should be doing or could be doing to manage that particular problem at the time that they need that answer. They don't get the full book about how to plant, how to prune, how to harvest and say, this is your manual, just go and do it. 
No, the community provides the, the, the support manual at a timely in a timely way. I think it's something that probably used to happen in good rural extension uh, or in in the local village vets in the past, where people used to say, "Oh, now I've got a problem with my animals." Who you know, and they go to a trusted farmer or to the local village vet or even the agricultural officer who was able to mentor and support over a period of time. But we've lost all that in the developing world, uh, the developed world. Uh, it's all gone back to agencies, big, big. Uh, ivory towers at universities and research centres, farmers don't have access and they don't speak the same language as those people. So we need to re- reinvent the local village support networks that traditionally provided farmers with the knowledge. And you're in France and we know the enormous amount, long history of skills that farmers have developed in each region to produce very high quality crops that are unique to a particular location that have a market advantage because of that. And that has come over time. And I'd like to see the same thing happen with forestry. So it becomes locally appropriate, locally specialised and supported by a local network of landholders. And that's through engagement over a long period of time, something that uh, politicians aren't very good at because they generally in Australia only provide funding for three years uh, because that's the election cycle we have. But if you have a strong community group is able to tap in to uh, commercial money and also public money and, and argues succinctly that this is what we need in our community, if you want what you want, you've got to support us to help farmers achieve what they want. And uh, it's really exciting where that works. And I've seen that in development work in in Africa and and the Pacific Islands. And it's the same model if we want to uh, reintroduce forestry into uh, a developed landscape as well. Nice. Very interesting. I I wanted to go into a few technical, um, slightly more technical aspects. Um, One of them is the fact that um, it's also associated with the risk, I imagine, but you you planted 70 species. And this is something that we talk a lot about in this podcast. It's the idea of diversity. And I'm curious to know why you planted such a huge diversity and how does that integrate everything that we've discussed now, you know, the stra- strategies around getting farmers to plant trees in a safe way, in, in a way that benefits their land and conservation, um, wh- whatever needs that they uh, have identified after going through this process you described. Yes, and, and I keep introducing new species every year. Um, there's, there's a few reasons. First of all, the risk one is obvious. Uh, when we initially planted uh, trees, I, I picked out my favourite uh, 10 species based on the expert advice and my own experience. And about three of those species I will not plant again because they cannot deal with climate change as we're experiencing it on the farm. So there, there's an obvious one. If you're going to plant trees that are going to stay in the landscape for a long period of time, the risks of not all of them producing the products or the values or even surviving are very real. So if you put all your eggs in one basket, two species of trees, uh, you're more likely to have total failure than someone who spends who plants a diversity of species. Having said that, the more species you plant, the more complicated the system and the less chance is that you'll have lots of the best ones 
because you're actually going to increase the probability that some of them will fail by having a wide range of species. So there's positives and negatives about having a range of different species. The second point is that some species can work in combination. And I talked about the shade-tolerant trees growing under the sun-loving trees before. So there's clearly an opportunity there, as, it, as we see in nature all the time. Uh, woodlands and uh, forest areas invariably are dominated by some, some large sun-loving species that poke their head out the top. But there's a niche in amongst those that you can have lots of other species. So why wouldn't you have a range? Of species in in a system, particularly where you're not grazing or cropping under the trees, and where you have that opportunity to have other species. So we can grow oaks that I'm looking at out the window. We can grow them underneath eucalypts. Now that's an exotic species under a native species for me, and uh, you can have many combinations like that. The third reason I plant a high diversity of species is that uh, it is the way that I learn. Uh, or despite being an academic, or because I'm an academic, I do learn enormous amount from research publications and, and books. But I'm learning other people's observations based on their experience. I can stop with that and say, well, they're the experts. I will learn from them. Or I can say, I am potentially the expert in my landscape, addressing my problems. So unless I try lots of different things and then learn from those experiences, I will be missing out on the opportunity to be my own expert. And what we've found here, we've developed um, uh, some different planting combinations, uh, different sorts of tree guards, and I've learnt things about particular species that weren't in the books because those issues weren't important to the people who wrote those books or journals. Take, for example, the fact that the coast redwood from California has a lignotuber. It's a large, woody, bulbous tuber that grows underneath the ground that is probably an evolutionary adaption for the seedling as it develops when the top of the tree was likely to be browsed off or burnt in a fire. And this is going back thousands of years when it adapted. So it spends the first few years with a lignotuber. As it turns out, I, could, I, I, know, I didn't find that out in a book. I found it by looking at the trees that I actually had in my nursery, going out into the paddock and digging up trees, and I noticed they had lignotubers. And then I was able to develop a question and ask that question of the research, and I found out that why it has a lignotuber and when it was first identified. So research, on-farm research, can be done at a very simple scale by anyone you don't need a PhD to be a researcher. It's observation, interpretation, developing a question. Then the research component is really about who you ask the question. Now, I talked about the mentors. I'm, I'm a mentor for many farmers, and they ask me questions about trees based on their observations. I learn from that, and they learn from that, and they build up. So having many species becomes... Mm -hmm a learning experience for your whole community as well as just yourself. And it also becomes a risk management option. And it also becomes something to maintain your enthusiasm and your interest in tree growing. And that for me, because I'm just, I'm passionate about learning about trees. The more I plant, the more I learn. 
through my own observations, the more questions it raises and the more that I can ask other people and search out the literature to answer those questions in some fashion. On Mazzy Farm, the farm that we started um, um, in 2017, we we live in, in southern Greece in an yeah. area that is extremely windy in an area that is uh, has very um, like a very extreme rainfall pattern with around 600 millimeters in the winter, and then pretty much nothing for six months of the year. It's quite extreme. Yeah. Uh, it's it's there's a certain microclimate uh, in in that in that valley because sometimes summer storms arrive in in many parts of Greece, but in this area it's the, they arrive very very little. And um, you know when I'm thinking about the trees there and the oaks and how how quickly they grow and and you know everything is kind of shrubby over there, apart from some species, which maybe is going to be a part of the answer of my question. But is 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 growing high quality wood, timber, for 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 of course for conservation, but also to have something to to sell or to build capital, uh, to build the land capital? Is it is it adapted to all contexts? Uh-huh. Are there places like the one I've described right now in Greece? Um, yeah. where it's just not really adapted and we've got to think about planting trees only for conservation and not many other reasons? Yeah, I, I, I know the challenges. You've described uh, much of the Australian landscape, really, in that uh, uh, we, we, do, we do get reliable winter rains in, in our temperate areas, um, but if the spring rains fail and you're going into a hot, dry summer, it can be very severe. Uh, most of our landscape, because it was cleared of trees, like in Greece, and uh, and uh, exposed for a long period of time, like in Greece, uh, you've you've got soil erosion, you've got shallow soils, you've got uh, exposure, you've got difficult rainfall. Yes, you can't just walk into these landscapes and expect trees to that you you plant to to grow like they would in a in a beautiful forest, uh, which was uh, sheltered from the wind. And uh, so identifying some of those challenges, first of all, and saying, uh, as we do, uh, the first step that many farmers might have to take is actually plant their shelter belts then look at sacrificing some of those trees that are exposed because their role is to shelter other trees in that planting that will grow straighter and perform better because they're less exposed to the environment. With regard to, to rainfall and, uh, and dryness, particularly. Of course, trees grow at different rates in different landscapes. Um, having said that, it's really their height growth, which will be more, more severely impacted by exposure and dry weather. So in, in, in most landscapes, the tallest trees in the world grow in the nice, moist, wet forest close to the coast where the humidity is high because growing trees tall is about lifting water a long way up the tree. So as you move to the drier mm-hmm. landscapes, your trees will grow shorter and the more exposed they are in that landscape, the shorter they will grow again. And that's because almost all species are susceptible to that exposure of that growing tip and the difficulty of lifting water up in a very dry environment. There are exceptions to that. Um, there are some pine species uh, that can grow quite tall in an exposed landscape. And I think of things like the Norfolk pine from a Norfolk island in the Pacific, which is commonly planted around the coast in Australia and overseas as a way of marking the harbour entrances. Because back in the days where people didn't have GPS and satellite, the fishermen would go out 
and it would be very difficult to see the port. Uh, they were looking for a tall tree that they could plant at the port that would grow tall despite the exposure to salt winds and 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 extreme weather. And this Norfolk Island pine is extraordinary. It can grow 30, 40, 50 metres in a landscape where all the native trees only get to 10 or 15 metres tall. And they use that because they can see it from a distance and, and aim back to head to port in some fashion. So there are some examples, but for most of us in most landscapes, the trees will need some shelter. So technically, the way to deal with that is initially plant a very dense planting, even do direct seeding in exposed landscapes, have wide belts of planting and plant the trees so they mutually shelter each other. And then once they're sheltering each other, and they're growing quite well, you can slowly thin them down to the wider spacing so that they can then start putting on the diameter growth. So you can manipulate mm, okay. the environment to get the, the trees growing taller, and you may use some fast-growing shrubby, shrubby species uh, as sacrificial shelter. Then they can be cut out for firewood or other products or even just we use a nitrogen-fixing tree here uh, one of the wattles that grows very quickly. Uh, it's very shrubby. It's not a good timber tree. It's malformed, particularly on exposed sites, but it produces a good firewood so you can grow it quickly, cut it out, and in the meantime, it's provided shelter for your other trees. And they'll get up to five or six metres around, so your trees will grow quite straight around that. And then you thin down and start growing those trees on. And uh, and once the tree is well established, it mightn't grow too much taller in height. Uh, but once you've achieved height growth and good stem form, by thinning you can promote diameter growth because the diameter growth of a tree is not related so much to climate because it's more opportunistic. Uh, it's not about lifting water to great heights. It's simply about taking advantage of the rainfall when it's available and the light and the temperature when it's available to put on growth. And if the trees aren't competing with their neighbours, uh, they can put on growth, and when the drought comes each summer, they'll just stop growing. And when they're, they're, So it's more opportunistic growth in diameter, but height growth is tricky because one dry season can set the tree back at the top, and a year's height growth can be lost simply because of that difficulty of lifting water to a very dry environment. So, yep, lots of different environments. Um, finding species that don't have to grow that tall to be very high value we have some very lovely uh, desert craftwoods. Uh, the trees might only have to reach 20 or 30 centimetres in diameter. They might only be five or six metres tall, but the wood of some of these timber, the timber of some of these species is so highly valued for craftwood and wood turning that uh, you don't have to always produce a very tall tree with a straight log in it to have something of value. So exploring what those local specialty timber markets might be for carving, woodworking, mm. and other 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 activities that don't require long timber links and you might find a a couple of species that can survive in that climate don't necessarily grow to be 30 meters tall but can still produce high value over a period of time good luck with that we've actually we've, yeah yeah we'll, we'll need some luck uh, but also some good uh, um we haven't yet planted for for um Planted for timber production, um, and we haven't thought about them for um, for speciality markets, etc. In terms of their wood, we've planted most of our trees for windbreaks, hedges, biomass production, 
trying to you know use them at, at the service of the soil and uh, and the fruit trees as as I described earlier on yeah. with yeah. we're working more with uh, fruit and nut crops so we're really using the trees for um, as a supportive system as the infrastructure that will hopefully nurse and care for um, some quality fruit production um, for us to you know. Um, um, get some economic benefit from um but actually in our region we've observed some some and on our land we've been the, the tree that surprised us the most is cypress wow. um uh, the cypress they're growing um they're three years old and they're already about two and a half three meters some of them in um in where the soil's a bit better of course in the areas where the soil's uh worse they're not so tall but still they're, they're some of the fastest growing on our land which is surprising um, of course, they're not as fast as the eucalyptuses that we've planted. We've planted um, eucalyptus camaldulensis. I can't oh, yeah. remember the name. Is it red gum? Yeah. Um, red gum. So I don't know about the value of that word, but red gum, yeah. So they, they, do, they grow really well. And in the region, actually, when you go to Greece, they're some of the biggest trees in Greece hmm. because they're planted quite uh, wildly uh, in, in, in cities, in villages, and uh, they actually prune them very hard in some areas. But they get, I've already seen some in Athens that are, that are maybe two meters, one and a half meter wide uh, in diameter, and so it's uh, so we plant we planted those as well. Let's see what 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 happens to them. But we've observed some of these cypresses in the valleys; they they get to twenty five meters for a Greek context, which is kind of surprising. Hmm. So we've started thinking a bit that they may be a, we we may start thinking about them as a you know as a long very long term investment where we we can produce some wood. So. It's also about uh, planting lots of things and seeing what's going to, as you said, seeing what's going to react and how, how the trees behave. Yes, you mentioned the cypress. Uh, cypress is another species that, that uh, many of the species within the group of cypresses, they, they protect the small buds from exposure. So you'll know in Italy the, uh, the, the, the tall, slender cypress trees growing on top of hills, they don't need the mutual shelter of uh, a forest around them. To grow tall and um, so that is another yeah where the cypresses grow and many of the cypresses produce naturally durable timber uh, which is very useful it has a you know a scented timber uh, and if that's mm-hmm. the case it's a very useful timber to use on farm because it's very easy to mill those softwood species and dry the timber and it can be used um, in so many applications around a farm where it's exposed to the weather even if it's not in the ground it can be used for shed building and siding for the sheds and and rails and stuff like that. And this is the timber that uh, the farmers, uh, when they've got no wo- access to wood, are forced to go and buy either steel or uh, or cement products where they could be using their own wood. And as I said before, the the easiest yeah. way to to make money from timber is to stop buying it and use your own because you're getting the full <laughs> on-farm delivered value of that product rather than, you know, the retail delivered value rather than uh, and selling it, you only get the wholesale value or the retail value and stuff like that. So always look for those local opportunities. And as, a, you know, obviously it reduces risk if you're the market. And, uh, and firewood is the obvious one that so many of farmers use uh, use firewood, and uh, if you have to buy firewood, or if you buy gas or oil to heat your heat your house, um, if you're producing your own firewood, and firewood is just a byproduct of growing trees for anything, um, you you know firewood is produced from our thinnings, from our prunings, from from our the trees that die. Any, you know, it's so easy to produce firewood, 
and so easy to process it that we can uh, we can produce on our farm for our own use. We probably go through about uh, five or ten tons of firewood per year. Uh, if I had to buy that in, it would be two hundred dollars a ton. So you know, there's a there's a couple of thousand dollars just made because uh, I didn't have to buy firewood and didn't have to turn on the electric heater. And uh, so these on-farm products are the starting point, and then you build on top of those to uh, to look at those opportunities that work in your particular region. But that that brings up the question for me of of you know, in your context in Bambra Agroforestry Farm. You know, what were the tree species attributes that you were looking for in a specific species? Uh, so what were the attributes that you were looking for for your farm when you were choosing the species? What, mm. what was it exactly? What were the characteristics that, that for you defined if it was worth planting uh, or trying out or not? Yeah, that, that's really interesting because um, I am interested in timber. So, you know, let, let's... Let's acknowledge, first of all, that if I'm planting for biodiversity, they'd probably be native species or flowering or, or a shoulder belt. It's got to be something that uh, actually grows in an exposed site. But if I think about timber as a product, uh, some of the attributes that I, I'm now more interested in. I used to, as a young forester, we're, we're all interested in the trees that grow the fattest, the fastest. And um, that's not always the best option as a, as a landholder. I often laugh that I planted the trees when I was 25 and 30 years old. I was young, fit and strong, uh, but I was carrying a seedling round in my hand. And now I'm I'm approaching 60 and I'm carrying a chainsaw and I've got logs that are two, two ton in weight and I'm lifting these heavy beams. It's sort of perverse. It should be the other, other way around. So if you think about that, <laughs> what uh, what are the sort of, attributes of a timber that might suit me as I get older but also suit the next generation and I'm moving to a certain number of characteristics first of all natural durability of timber we just described it for the cypress uh, the red gum for example you mentioned eucalyptus camaldulensis is one of 800 eucalypt species but not all eucalypts produce a durable wood that can resist rot and termites in the ground. Red gum is extraordinary. We have a range of other ones. So I now prefer to plant trees that may be slower growing if they produce wood that is naturally durable because naturally durable wood, whether it can be used in the ground or even just outside, has much more versatility in terms of its markets, can be sold to everyone from used on farm to your neighbour to the person down the road and because it's often used outside, uh, it doesn't have to be you know, fully, aired, fully kiln dried and other sort of furniture grade. The next characteristic I'm looking for is more for that specialty furniture market. It is, is timbers that have spectacular colour or grain in the wood. Now, mm. as Europeans, you're familiar with the oak ray cells that you see in oak and chestnut. Uh, these ray cells... Are spectacular when you get them on the cortisone face of a timber board. Uh, because the Europeans came and settled in Australia, they started chopping down trees and the native trees, and then they noticed that some of them actually had very predominant ray cells, just like the oak. And we have uh, Gravia, uh, a native species, which is called silky oak because it has a beautiful timber with a lovely ray cell. We have she oaks, and they were called she oaks because the wind, the noise of the wind makes when it goes through the leaves is shh. 
and the oak grain. So those common names are actually a good indicator of some of the species I look at and say, why did the settlers call this an oak timber? It must have a good grain in it. And then I go and look at the grain and then I start planting trees that have this wood characteristics, uh, good colour or no colour, blonde timbers that are durable, dark timbers, the red timbers and different colours and stuff like that. And then these ray cells and characteristics. So I'm moving towards trying to produce a range of specialty timbers because they're naturally durable, have a beautiful grain structure, have a colour that's not available elsewhere so that I can market off the farm a range of timbers so to match a range of different needs of the market. It's more like uh, having a, a, a craft shop that has 30 different species in it rather than going to a timber yard that only sells two species, you know, softwood or, or hardwood. And um, so I'm thinking specialty forestry in the future is where someone might drive a couple of hundred kilometres to visit my farm because there's nowhere else that they can buy that particular timber that they need to make a an arrow or a bow or a piece of craft or mm. a specialty uh, antique, fix a bit, some antique furniture or, or do some extraordinary piece of art or just or, or build a vegetable garden with something without chemicals treated in the wood. And they're the sort of things I think about in the future, partly to celebrate the diversity of, uh, of timber uh, because I don't know if it's the same for you, but you go into the timber yard here and they really only have two species in the yard and uh, it's all cut for framing timber. And, uh, and you know, you don't really have that choice. And if I'm going to compete with those big production timber yards, I've got to have something special. And that special can come through the inherent characteristics of so many different species that have beautiful grain, colour, durability, or some other attribute to the wood. That's very interesting. Rowan, I have one last question to ask you, um, and I would um, feel very guilty if I didn't, because I think it's very important. Um, and um, after that, um, I'll, I'll, we'll close the interview because it's been a while and I don't want to be too, I don't want to exaggerate too much with your time, uh, just slightly. <laughs> uh, and so the, the next question for me is really about scale and, yeah. and you know, the, what is the right scale for a farmer? How because, of course, there's problems of mechanization that we discussed, which will influence that, um, um, you know, with limited mechanization and specialized machinery um, available to a farmer, there is a question of, of the cost of harvesting and et cetera. But there's also a, a question of the, of, the selling, of the selling opportunities. So, you know, how, what are the distribution channels and how much can they accept? And then, of course, there's the activity of the farmer. And uh, who is also a farmer and who wants to manage all of these things, and so who may have more or less time for his wood plantation. You know, how do you go about with a farmer defining the right scale, and what are the biggest limits to to scaling? What's the role of mechanization? Yeah, now that's an excellent question. It works on two levels. First of all, there is a a strong adage in Australian farming: uh, get big or get out. And that's to do with all types of farming. So mm. um, my brother was a dairy farmer. He had uh, back in the 80s and he milked 70 cows. And uh, that was a small but a reasonable size family farm for a dairy farm. Farms these days, dairy farms, uh, have a thousand cows and big rotary dairies and, and, and they're run all by one family. And just to be 
uh, commercial. They've got to have scale and economies that come with that. And uh, the same thing is obvious in, in so many aspects. And it's, it's, forestry is no different. Um, of course, you can produce one tree of very high value that is worth cutting down. But if you have a 1,000 or 2,000 or 10,000 of those same trees, your opportunities to have lower costs of production because of the economies of scale, uh, efficiencies that come with harvesting, uh, the opportunity to use the waste product uh, from harvesting and get a market for that and have access to bigger buyers is, is clear. But it, it's not necessarily the only way to do it. So I'll describe what we have here and then and w then use some examples. Um, this currently, and it's, it's not the best, ex best situation, um, we're, we're very small scale, partly because we have too many species and different planting arrangements, and it's only a 100 acre or 40 hectare farm. And we've also got other areas of grazing and, and other activities. But uh, we have a 100 horsepower tractor, and I've got a, a European logging winch on the tractor. I think it comes from Slovenia with a PTO driven a remote controlled winch with an 80 meter, 70 or 80 meter cable on it. And I've got a chainsaw. So I can go to any tree on our area, even on patches of steep land. I could fell that tree with a chainsaw and use the logging winch to guide the tree to where I want it to fall. And that's good because it reduces the damage to other neighboring trees. I can use the winch to pull that log out and use the tractor to drag the log out across the paddocks and up into you know, my collection area. In, in my case, most of the logs go to the sawmill. I have a small portable sawmill that comes from North America uh, called the Norwood uh, Band Sawmill. Um, I would like a bigger mill. I would like a, a more efficient, less manual mill. But uh, that's all I can afford, and I, I think that is worth about $20,000 with the equipment that I've got on it. And that allows me to process the log uh, using the front-end loader to turn the log, load it and unload it, the, the timber. Then it goes into a solar kiln. Uh, the solar kiln is uh, like a, a poly house. Um, it holds about 16 cubic metres of timber uh, stacked out for drying. Uh, it uses the sun's energy for heat, but it has a computer program and electricity to drive the fans and that allows me to dry. It is slow, but slow is sometimes good when you're drying timber to reduce the risks of some of the drying problems. And it's got limited capacity. And out of that, then I can move timber into a shed, and I'd like a bigger shed. So like all farms, you would like things to be a little bit bigger, but it allows me to do small timber processing mm -hmm. on, the, on the farm. And value-adding is one way to offset the lack of economies of scale I have in the forest. Uh, for example, I, if I harvest one tree, there's no sawmill that wants to buy one log. Uh, but if I process that log, I can sell the timber to a whole range of other people who only want some timber. And so if you're able to, with the species you've got, the equipment and the networks you've got to do some value adding, that is the, the easiest way to overcome the problems of scale. But back in the forest, Scale, as we started this conversation, can be overcome a little bit by quality. Now, I'm just recalling because you're uh, you're over in Europe, 
I went to uh, some of the, I go to many of the old gardens in Europe. I love visiting the gardens. And uh, just outside some of the castle gardens, you go into the sort of what used to be the production forest area, I imagine. And there were some castles in France that the gardens weren't so interesting. They were a bit too ornate and, and fancy. But a, a couple of hundred metres out where none of the guests would really go, I'd walk out into the little forest, the woodlands around the castle. And in one place I saw these spectacular oak trees and beautiful black walnut trees that have been pla- obviously planted, managed for timber over, over you know, maybe a century. And, so, and I'm thinking those trees are clearly valuable enough to fell, mill, even on site, and dry that timber and only take one tree because those trees are so much in demand, as you said, and uh, the timber mm. has been well managed. Uh, the efficiencies of milling are much better if you're having a nice round straight log that's been pruned in some fashion and uh, you can overcome so many of those problems by getting quality. And I think of, uh, of French farmers again, who have made small-scale production systems work because the emphasis is not on the volume they produce, it's not on producing a commodity, it's producing a, a product that is, is, has, a, has a quality. And I, I'm sure there's a French term to do with uh, the difference between a commodity product and a product that you can sell to the local baker or sell to the local... Uh, um, pork ham ham dealer or something like that that has uh, has something of quality from that particular region. It means, as I said before, that the way we do forestry has to change. But I'd, I'd really like to see forestry work at a small scale, the way artisan agriculture is working so well around the world, and for it to support through that even a tourism industry where people would come to an area to admire the furniture made in that area from species grown on farms in that area by farmers and their families who have been managing it for generations. Wouldn't that be a lovely future to envisage where forestry became part of that farming landscape and became part of that what the community saw their, described their, their landscape. They described their landscape and their community and they might even talk about the trees as being part of that description as well. And that would be a beautiful um, way to think about the future of forestry in what is a world where everything else has turned into commodities and people are looking for something which is truly natural, truly unique, and through that they're about, they're prepared to pay for it and uh, reward those who have actually taken the initiative and the care to produce those things of high value over a long period of time. And maybe that's a good way to leave it, with that promising future for, for forestry at a small scale. I think that's a fantastic way to finish um, the interview. And um, thank you so much, Rowan, for giving me um, two hours nearly of your time. Uh, really appreciate it. This interview was fascinating, and I know it will be very much appreciated by our listeners. Thank you so much for listening and making it this far. We are curious, what did you wish we had asked Rowan? Let us know on our website so we can build an understanding of what key questions you have in order to ask our next guests. So see you next time.